afternoon, everyone. This is Zarina, trainer in business with meaning. I'm here today with Mike Amato, one of the experts on uh, growandlearn.org that I work with, and uh, also um, a transformational leader and executive. Um, currently, he's a keynote speaker that uh, trains people and mentors executives on transformations. And today we are coming up with a very important topic because as you might, might have heard, actually, you couldn't have missed that the world is uh, in turmoil and that stock markets are plummeting and um, the DAX and the German Stock Exchange had one of the biggest lows in their history today. So what I was discussing with Mike Amato uh, a few minutes before we started was that uh, companies now more than ever would need huge transformations. And um, even, even if the stock markets recover at some point, the, um, uh, the period of managing them uh, with remote workers, with, uh, with uh, remote working would probably last for a few months. So they would need to navigate those new circumstances. But before that, before we delve in, let me just say hi and uh, give you a word. <laughs> hi, Mike. Hi, Zarina, how are you? Good, good. You're, you. you're based in, the, um, in one of the, the centers of, um, of corona disease spread in Seattle, in the U.S. What is the yeah. situation there? You know, it, it's so strange because um, it, it's, it's a situation that you, you know is severe, but you're not quite sure how severe because it's not gotten out of hand yet. So the question is something you can't uh, see necessarily um, has such, taken such dramatic control of our lives um, which is so unusual. It's not like a giant, giant snowstorm or, um, a, you know, an earthquake or a natural disaster. We had, we had some, um, um, some, some forest fires, you know, a couple summers ago that create a big smoke cloud. It's not like that because you can't see it. Um, but it's, but it's um, as you said, it's, it's even more dangerous than that. It's not localized. It's globalized. And how we respond right now is just really incredible because we're all trying to get our minds around what it's going to take to prevent the spread. And it's hard because a lot of people are so science and evidence-based, they want data. And the challenge with this is that once you get enough data that says, oh yeah, it is true. This is, you know, it is taking off worse than the normal flu is. Um, it is affecting more people. Well, then by that time, it's, it, it's, it's out of control. And I think we've seen some countries, um, you know, Italy, Iran have had, China, of course, significant challenges because once it's out there, it's out there and you can't do anything about it at that point mm -hmm. other than take very strong draconian measures to lock down everything. Mm -hmm. So sorry for going on and on, but it's, it's on our minds in Seattle saying, right. is this a few hundred cases, million cases in America? It's hard to believe it. And yet everything we're hearing says you'd better believe it. And so we're trying to take the right steps and do the right things before we have to do them. Right. But it's a snowballing effect. In the end, uh, you know that if it, if it spreads to the point where um, the, the health institutions won't have any space, then we are facing a, a complete lockdown of everything, of the, of the whole governmental structure. So, you know, it's, it's quite uh, a significant threat, even if a lot of people try to play it down. Um, but we're not... We haven't gathered here to talk about the coronavirus per se, but about how companies can deal with the situation because they would have to, even if certain measures have not been introduced yet, very soon they'll have to, uh, you know, gatherings at workplaces will also be prohibited probably. So they would have to send people home to do remote working. And since this, if it hasn't been the culture so far uh, in a company, this would require a lot of a huge transformation and you're an expert of transformations because in 2008 um, when the, the the huge recession hit you were uh, one of the or, or the person who um, took out one of the major uh, one of the global banks um, and restructured it so maybe you can tell us a bit about this or, sure. or you have other That's thoughts perfect. no perfect Thanks for that introduction. And in fact, I, will, I do want to tell that story because um, it, it's relevant right now. So, so this is related, by the way, to the, um, you know, to the coronavirus spread and the challenges that we're facing globally. It's, it's, and, and the need to transform is massive right now. The need to transform and, and, and have great leaders truly announce themselves, you could argue, has never been greater. So the challenge is 
what does transformation mean? So we all know in our personal lives, for example, transformation is very difficult unless there is a crisis. And by the way, the same thing happens in businesses as well. Although organizations tend to transform a little faster because not necessarily because they have more crises, but they try to think in terms of constantly reinventing themselves and reinventing themselves. So probably a little bit more practice um, in, in, in corporations and organizations than the family at home. But the, but the underlying challenge is the same. You need a case for change. And right now, this economy, this, this, this um, pandemic is giving us a case for change that perhaps is unprecedented. I mean, perhaps it's 9-11 or perhaps it's a, the, the financial crisis. Um, I don't know. But the point is, is that it's clearly right now is a time to change and transform. And, and the question is, well, then, you know, what are you transforming and, and, and what does that mean? And then how do you do it? So if you don't mind, I'll tell a story of transformation where I learned firsthand what it means to do this on a fairly large scale and how I think it applies to many of the leaders um, in, in today's economy and the challenge that we face today. It, does that sound like a good way to proceed? Sounds great. Um, I, I would also like to talk about the, um, the leadership style and the leadership skills that would need to be developed, but I don't know if this ties in right now with your story or shall we talk about it in a bit? Um, I, I, that's actually, that's a really major, a significant point. And, and I think the story will bring that out, um, Zorina. Okay, great. Because, because the leadership style is actually, if you want a spoil, spoiler alert, the end of this is going to be all about a leadership style and a leadership's relevance. And I'll show you how leaders can matter. Because a lot of times you wonder, what, what good is leader for? What, what's a leader's relevance? From a leader's standpoint, that's blasphemy because, of course, I know my relevance. Of course, I know. I had a boss one time who said, count the stripes on my shoulder. That tells you how relevant I am. And it's like, okay, great. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the position that you hold and the control and power you have. The question is, are you relevant? And I'll show you, I'll tell you the story of leaders who had become irrelevant and what that means and how that has to be rediscovered. And I think, again, the end of this will be, I think um, upwards of, of uh, well, more than half, maybe three quarters of the organizations really need to think about their leadership and make sure that the leadership is relevant. And I'll show you why, and then I'll show you how. How's that sound? Awesome. Fantastic. Go ahead. So, so uh, hey, how, how do you become a, uh, you know, uh, someone, someone who is very experienced and skilled in the art of transformation? By the way, it's called the art of transformation, not the science of transformation. So although I'm going to give you answers about transformation, I do want to point out that it is, that it is an art and requires a, a strong feel, and it's about people, not about business systems, although business systems definitely support the transformation. The art is all around how do you relate to people, and let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, so, Zarina, um, um, in, in uh, 2006, I was brought into the UK um, from a large bank in the USA. Um, the bank in the USA had a very strong culture, by the way, um, um, many ways to measure that, but very, very strong culture, but it was changing. And, and, and as a culture, they evolved in their business strategy and their business plans and, and, and their business model, in fact, it, the values didn't resonate with me. So I left that organization and went to uh, Barclays in the UK, um, where um, um, we were undertaking a, a large transformation. What had happened is, over the course of the last few years, the organization of, um, uh, that, I was, that I was assuming um, responsibility for is about 30,000 people. And there was a lot of indications that there was things that needed to change. Um, the customer metrics, the things about customer satisfaction were, were, were well below what this organization should be. By the way, there's no reason I can't say the name of the company, but it's Barclays Bank in the UK. Barclays Bank, 300-year-old brand, but they had lost their way just a little bit. And, and, and again, there were signs of there was issues. Um, employee relations were, were poor. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, the bank I was coming from the United States had employee engagement scores of, of 87% typically. Now, global high-performing norm was 86%. At the time we went to Barclays, it was 64%. All this measured by the Hay Group, so apples to apples. So 64%. So that was just one indication that something's not right. The health of the organization is not there. There were other things around business performance, um, uh, the volatility in earnings, the lack of innovation. Um, 
the, the lack of, you know, frankly, respect in the marketplace, the brand image had really, really slipped. So um, there were some reasons for it, which are probably not important to talk about now. But what happened is we knew we needed to change. And as we're getting into it, trying to understand how to do it, and meeting the team and meeting the people, again, you've got to, you've got to sit there and say, how do we change and something around to 30,000 people? So um, one Friday night, um, they're late at night, about eight o'clock. Um, I remember exactly eight o'clock. Um, the phone rings and it turns out to be the BBC and it's a producer on the phone. I said, well, we're going to be featuring Barclays on, on, uh, on the BBC on a national show this Sunday. I'm thinking, how fantastic is that? I'm so excited <laughs> because I get to be on the BBC and not, not I, but us, we, the brand, you know, and, and wow. I mean, you know, from America, that's a huge honor. So, um, he goes, yeah, absolutely. This is true, Mike. Um, and what, what happened is um, 18 months ago, before you got there, actually, we embedded three reporters into the business. And they've been working there for 18 months now and recording wow. all the meetings, all the training sessions, all the communications. And we've taken those and put them into an hour-long show called Whistleblower, showing how Barclays is mistreating staff and customers. Oh, my God. This is like a movie. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> I wish it was a movie. I mean, it was seriously from the low point of my professional career instantly hits you and the air leaves the room. Um, being an American, I think, well, we need to call our attorneys and we have to stop this show. We can't let this happen. You can't do this. That's not right. Well, as it turns out, we can't stop it. And the BBC did show it. And it was a massive, um, quite frankly, organization, hum organizational humiliation. Um, um, they even showed um, examples of, of staff interacting with customers and, and clearly um, not taking care of the customer. I, I'm hesitant to get into too much detail. I can if we have more time, but remind me if you ever want to talk about this. A specific example of this poor staff member, bless her soul, that, that just had a very, very difficult situation with the customer right on the hidden camera. It was filmed. And, um, and, and, and the voiceover for the, for the reporter said, and if you didn't know how to sell the Barclays way, now you do. It was disastrous. Wow. Well, you know, we've got unions now very, very upset. We have the board is very, very upset. We have um, the executive teams are very, very upset. And um, although I was new and just began the transformation of the business, um, you could see the little infrared dot on my forehead that I was, I was under notice that this had to be fixed quickly. We, we couldn't tolerate this. Um, and, and, and so, um, it was, you know, again, one of the greatest challenges and, and you wonder, well, you know, what do we do? But by the way, an important point is that the business itself was underperforming significantly already. We were only 48% to goal in every, so we have several, you know, in a bank, you have several product areas and, and, and ways that you're going to measure business performance. And by business performance, I'm talking about financial results. Well, um, they were underperforming significantly 48 percent to, to, to the plan was just quite frankly just another symptom of the problem so what turned out to be the biggest challenge in my professional career was actually the greatest gift and it's why to this day i call my website amato sparks because this challenge this um, um crisis created a spark that said we need to do something now and we need to stop debating it um, we need to say what are the drivers of this business? How are we going to change this business? How are we going to turn around? How do we address this? But in a strategic way that positions the organization to outperform in every dimension of performance um, in, in as short a period of time as possible. So this really sparked us. And it was really an incredible motivation because the first thing we did was to take accountability from a leadership standpoint. This happened as a failure of leadership. doesn't matter how long I was there. You have to start with yourself and say, this crisis happened as a failure of leadership, and we have to acknowledge that it's our job if we are supposed to be relevant, if we're supposed to add value to the organization, it's at a time like this when I think great leaders announce their presence and, um, and, 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 and say, we, do, we are relevant, we can't change it. And my team um, turned out to just do that. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a couple things that we did to kind of get things going is, Number one, we, we, you know, we really needed a revolution. And, and by the way, it's very synonymous to the times today. If everybody's working from home and yet customers still need to have their needs taken care of, we still need to help them. Um, uh, we're we're going we're gonna to help them with the right products and with the right services, help them with complaints, help them manage their lives and whatever business we're thinking about, we still have to do that. 
proposal. We're going to do it now remotely. What does that look like? What does that feel like? How do we represent our brand? And in fact, what you see now is a lot of the announcements that come out um, that, you know, businesses all feel compelled to now say, given the coronavirus concerns, um, here is what we're doing. And you can read those. And, and I'll challenge everybody listening to this, or I'll invite you, I should say, not challenge. Read those and say, do I get a feel for this culture and brand of this company? And is it different than this company and that company? And again, I can give specific examples that show absolutely. I've got three that I printed up just the other day saying this shows very, very um, vividly. Yeah, please. The culture Let, let's, let's share some specific examples if you have them at hand. Okay, I'll paraphrase because they're over okay. across the room and I don't want to leave the ah, camera. Sure. Because yeah. Everybody would be upset if they can't see me for two minutes. So give me just, I'll paraphrase. Okay. Um, what one company um, sent a uh, sent a communication, and the communication said, "You know, dear customer, dear valued customer, at our company we take serving the customer very, very seriously. In our long history, we have always stepped up in times of challenges. We believe in talented people doing the job, and we think that. And in the first three paragraphs, all they did was talk about them. Right." And so that's a leader, by the way, if you want to say, you know, what's a profile there, it's a profile of a leader who is surrounded by people that want to talk about, let's, let's be introspective. Let's show how we're there. We have to project an image of strength, an image of investment, an image of calmness, an image of leader, guidance, and control. We're in control here. It just shouted, we're in control. So mm -hmm. that leader is a control leader. It's quite obvious. There's even more specifics on that. Next one I got was, hi, um, we're as concerned about the safety of you, our customers, and by the way, our staff too, because we value our staff. And so we're going to take the following measures given, the, given this, um, uh, you know, this coronavirus outbreak. Here's what we're going to do to protect, protect everybody involved. We're going to take three simple steps. We're going to dot, 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 and dot. And we want to thank you for being our customer. And please let us know if you have questions or if you're uncomfortable in any way with anything that's happening. We'll be glad to get back to you and talk to you. Now, that is a leader who serves a, a purpose. And that's a leader who said the purpose is to um, involve customers and employees in the process of, of recovering, in the process of doing what we're really here to do. They're, they're, um, um, I'm collaborating with them in my message, very collaborative, and I get to the point very, very quickly. It's a beautiful message. It's what I needed to hear. I didn't need a bunch of PR spin. I just want to know, what do I need to know and, and, and why should I care what you're saying to me? And I love that message. The, the third message was, was you know, um, uh, kind of between the other two. The third message from a company was, um, 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 you know, during this challenging time, there's always the same preamble yeah. that, you know, that challenging time we're interested in, 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 um, in, in, in ensuring the safety of you, our customers, and keeping you very informed. And, and then the letter goes on to talk about the process of informing and the regimen around sending communications and the response rate, then it, which I didn't think was very flattering of the organization because it was almost as if they're talking to me, the customer as their employee. But then it kind of shifted tone. It made a nice recover at the end, and the recovered at the end. And, and it was very human saying, given this challenge, we're going to offer a discount for this type of service, that type of service, and that type of service because we think it's really important that you have access to these critical things at your time and, and we're happy to offer this to you. So it recovered. So that's why I say it's between the other two. Right. But the main point is, Zorina, that you, you've got to feel for the culture of that company. Now, remember, culture and brand are, are, are two of the same thing, different sides of the coin, okay? So culture is, so, so let's start over. Brand is the image the company wants to portray of what we stand for to the external audiences. And we all know about brand images and marketing and, and the like. Well, culture is the brand reflected inwardly. So culture is what we stand for and how we project the brand inwardly to our companies, to, our, uh, to, to the organization internally. So you get a chance to look at these reactions and, and it's going to be very interesting. And, and I, again, I invite everybody to watch their own communications. And if you're responsible for doing communications, um, there's a, I, I think there's a lesson there, which is, well, Number one, you're not going to write a communication that does not convey your culture and brand. It, it just has to. Right now, you're not going to create a letter that, that goes against everything you stand for and, and have decided to stand for. The, the issue is, what have you done till now and what really is your culture all about? Now, 
let me leave that question there because it's a little bit vague. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Let's go back to Barclays. I'm sitting there. We've got this challenge. I'm having very, very serious meetings with, as I mentioned, key stakeholders, the regulators, um, um, you know, the, the unions, the executive committees and the like. And um, what it was clear was we needed to um, um, and change the culture. It's easy to say, but how do you do it? So we looked at it like a revolution and revolutions start in the streets. So we went out to the staff and said, please tell us the truth about the company. What can happen in large companies, and maybe it's people listening here will recognize this point, is that decision-making has moved ever, ever further away from customers. We have incredibly smart people. We have incredibly good data scientists, financial engineers, um, wonderful leaders, um, uh, masters of business administration degrees, and, and we all think about the business from a desktop view of the business. And, and for that need, the need for um, legal and regulatory controls, decision-making is, is pulled um, away from the customers. We did the opposite. We went out to the, to the employees who are closest to the customers and we interviewed them. Random sampling because we had to get a, get a good sampling of different divisions, different levels of the company. But it's phenomenal the feedback we got. And, and what, came, what, what became very clear was that we as a leadership team we're so taught up in our minds intellectually thinking about the business and how to drive financial performance, how to drive the numbers. We did things that were logical if that was the beginning of your strategy was our strategy is, and I, and I can tell you our strategy was to make 2 billion pounds in profits every year. Okay. So to do that, you know, you, you, you make 5 billion in revenue and you spend 3 billion and you have 2 billion. So that's essentially very, very close to numbers at the time. But when that's the beginning point of your strategy, it actually ceases to become a strategy. And, and what happens, you very logically then do tactical things that are attached to that because that's what you want to do. So you do things that make a lot of sense. And after the course of time, as this thing drifts further and further away from your true purpose, you actually don't even realize that the company and the values that we say that we stand for actually became irrelevant and a new set of values emerged. Uh, take, take practices that we found out that we're, we're, they were kind of aware that they were there, but they're one of the things we're thinking about. How do we um, change the way we speak to employees? I'll tell you something. Um, we took the goals for a, a certain section of the company, boil it down. We give it to the manager, say, here's your goals. Divide it by the number of people that work for you. Divide it by the number of days in a month. And every day you have a goal of, of whatever it is you're supposed to produce, whatever the output is. And if you come up by Friday and you're short of your weekly goal, you've got a phone call with your boss and your boss's boss. We're going to talk about a performance improvement plan on how you can get back on track. So people dreaded these, these goals. In fact, we asked the staff to say, tell us with a bunch of um, cards and pictures on the table, show us what do you think about Barclays? First thing they showed was targets. There was a target with an arrow in the middle of it saying, all we hear about is targets. Next one was um, um, uh, think of a Greek hillside with different color homes, different buildings, chock-a-block sort of organization. They said, we don't understand the organization because there's a head of everything responsible for a head of anything. And they say, I don't know who is supposed to be supporting me, who's helping me, because it was clear that we, we didn't look at the company from a management standpoint as supporting the employees. We looked at the company as delivering results. So they said, so I've got all these people talking about the things I need to do to deliver results that I don't really understand the organization structure. The third thing, and I'm speaking quickly because I'm going into too much detail. No, it's, it's really interesting because what you're depicting is actually a typical large organization. This is, this is what I've experienced working for a large organization. And this is what I've, you know, people and colleagues that I've spoken to that have worked in other large organizations. It is the same picture everywhere. After a while, there's a complete disconnection between values and purpose and the strategy. Uh, thank you for saying that. And by the way, anytime you need, raise your hand and cut across my comments because I get going because I'm just Whoa, so I'm super interested. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so passionate about because I feel so deeply about the impact on the, on the staff and that has a contagion effect on your customers. So now the third card the staff would hold up is a clown. So what does a clown mean? Well, the clown means I love my coworkers. We have fun. We have a great time together. So, so um, the fourth card they'd hold up was a lion. So, well, why would Barclays employees show a lion? We're an eagle is our symbol. They said, no, we're proud. We're proud. I've been at this company for a long time. I'm proud of the brand. I'm proud of our place in British society. And, and 
I, I, I like to, I'm, I'm happy that I work at this organization. I just wish we didn't, hadn't lost our way, etc. So, wow, you talk about, and by the way, those cards came up consistently in these different focus groups. So as we looked at it and we started thinking about it, the, the, the notion is this, we had gotten into such a directive standpoint, number one, beginning with the idea about financial results is what we're here to deliver. Again, not illogical because if a company doesn't make money, I can hear all the CFOs out there saying, but if we don't make money, we don't exist. Got it. I understand that. But the financial results are actually the outcome of something. They're not the input. So by making it the input, we end up with an organization that then began to lead by directives, delivering results. You got to deliver results. And I'll tell you what, if you want to have some fun and, and, and you want to try something, talk to your kids about getting good grades. And why don't you manage their grades first before you manage the process of them getting good grades? And I wish you all the luck in the world because it's going to depend greatly on their personality and their reaction to directive things saying, I want it, I want good grades. I want good marks. I want good marks. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, let's talk about the process of getting good marks. So this, this um, uh, a little careless analogy there, but it's the same thing with workers. The, the other point is that when we talk to the teams and we say, well, what do we stand for? We stand for getting good financial results, it means we got into the habit of telling people what they needed to do. If they were underperforming, a performance improvement plan says, you need to do more of this, 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 and that means you better do more of that, that, that. So the things you need to do are more of this and more of that. So now we're coaching people on how they can be better at their jobs in a moment of great stress for them. So what I realized is this, the remarkable thing is when these people left our buildings, all around the UK at night, they somehow got home by themselves. I don't know how Zarina, because they didn't have us to tell them how to get home. They somehow have relationships and families. They take care of parents. They take care of children. They take care of each other on their own without a manager telling them what they need to do. Remarkable how these people live their lives outside of the company. They somehow go to PTSA, parent-teacher meetings, they somehow bury their loved ones. They somehow support uh, friends and family through crisis. They somehow figure out how to live their life and create a budget. I'll be dog hunt, all without these incredibly intelligent um, um, leaders at our company to tell them how to live their lives. But boy, when they came to work, oh my heavens, you better stop thinking and start listening right now because we're going to show you. And the point was, this was a transformation that called stop the, We didn't call it stop the madness, but at my point, stop the madness. We have a hard stop on that. And that I say this, this BBC program was the greatest gift to me actually, because I got a chance to say, stop all this nonsense. I know we're behind plan. I know that we're, we, we can't sustain this type of performance. And I know we can't be on national TV again. Put that all aside. I get it. Let's change the fundamental things that are causing this type of performance. And let's look at it on five dimensions. Number one, what do customers think about us? By the way, I should take number one, but actually it just has to be my thumb. The next one is, which might be more important, is let's change how our employees think about us. If we can take care of our employees, and you know what, Zarina, if we can capture their discretionary energy, instead of have to do, they want to do, we actually tap into the collective intelligence talent and contribution of 30,000 people. I don't care how many people we hire who are big brains in the head office, but it's only going to be in the, at the most hundreds, the most hundreds. Why not have 30,000 people contributing? Because again, these people have their own lives outside of work. So of course they have things to contribute. So let's have metrics that talk about how do we relate to our employees in different ways. And let's ask them is leadership relevant. That leadership should be serving that employee and helping them do their job in the best degree possible. And if they're not, if they don't have the right skills, if perhaps they don't like the direction of the company, and if they're not aligned to the single purpose we all need to be aligned to, I'll invite them to go uh, find an organization with, with values that match with, with the values that match theirs and, and the purpose that matches theirs. But we're really good at recruiting. And so we want to get the best person in the world at every position. So we need to measure that. We need to talk about that. We need to think about how we communicate with employees differently. Isn't it funny how I hold my finger, the same finger for the, each one of these five dimensions. Next dimension, I'll, I'll move my hand. Next dimension is um, um, management metrics. 
Now, what are management metrics? Well, sometimes we have a long list of deliverables that we, have, we need to produce, but really, let's boil it down to something quite simple. Managers are there to increase productivity, getting more from the same amount of people, and then being as efficient as possible, so efficiency. So we need metrics for efficiency and productivity. That's what managers are supposed to do. So we talked about that. The next dimension is compliance. We're a regulated industry. Um, did, you have, we, um, did you have employee-related ma uh, matrix to the efficiency measurement? Yes. Was, was, was it the 360? Uh -huh. Yeah, and the answer is absolutely. In fact, in rethinking the organization and trying to move decision-making closer to the customer, it's only logical that we use um, all of our managers to create their goals and to create their targets. So, so we knew what we needed to do at an all-up level, but we moved actually the budgeting process down to the, to the um, uh, managers closest to the customer. And we asked them each to build their budgets. And the surprising thing is they came up with a plan that was actually uh, less cost than the top-down plan, actually had revenue that was, if I remember my numbers correctly, 27 or 28% higher than the top-down plan. But because they came up with it, and they and, and we rolled it up from the from the I, I, I'm hesitant to say bottom, but I, you can see I moved my hands from the level close to the customers to the top. We actually created a plan that would outperform in every single one of the dimensions I'm talking about. But it was discretionary. They wanted to do it, and they said, "But if you can give us this, this, and that, we can do this." And then we asked them to create a stretch goal. This was not stretch goals. We asked them to do their goals, but then also create stretch goals. You wouldn't believe their stretch goals. But the point is, is that they were so honored to ask. And they actually, again, they run their own budgets at home. They're actually capable of running their budget at work, understanding the big picture. So absolutely efficiency and um, productivity was passed down through the employee metrics. And fundamentally, it underscores the type of revolution that we're talking about. So the fourth dimension is compliance and legal. So obviously, we're in a, in a regulated industry. So we needed a good regulatory um, um, organization that, that's regulatorily sound, um, audits, legal. We had our metrics around around zero failed audits. Um, you know, there's a couple of referrals we could take a year. There was a time frame for producing responses to issues, um, et cetera. So you get the idea around compliance. We we and then finally the last point is then financial results. And two points I want to make. So absolutely, we had financial targets that we had to hit. We knew that but we moved it out of the discussion until the end. So we also look at this balanced scorecard. So if financial input is the, financial results is the output, the first four are the inputs. If you get each one of those right, my point was you'll, you'll have a financial output that you can't even believe would happen today. And I had to use those exact words with the board and said, trust me, I know I'm gonna get fired if I don't deliver, but you won't believe the financial result. If You'll let me put at the end and listen to what I'm saying about fixing the first four dimensions. Quick word about balance scorecard I was going to mention a moment ago, Zarina, is that balance implies that we tip this to move that and that it's a teeter-totter that, that we come into a balance. No, we look at a scorecard, we call it a balance scorecard, but I wanted outperformance in every one of these five dimensions. After all, that lion that the card that the staff held up and they said, we're proud of this company. If those... Folks could be so proud of the company, we ought to be proud as well. And we should have an expectation of this organization should be, number one, the best person in the world at every single job that we have. But number two, we should over-deliver on every one of those dimensions, and we should approach it without fear. Fear and the risk of failure is what kills innovation. So a lot of big companies, not to get on a tangent here, but it's really important to understand their drivers of a transformation. One of them is the rebirth of innovation. You've rightly said going out to the, to the um, employee base and helping, asking them to help think about how to run this company creates ideas that would not normally boil up to the surface. So innovation is an inclusive thing. Innovation comes when there's no risk. Why would I raise my hand if I'm going to get in trouble? So the whole, role, the whole goal of empowerment to this organization and this transformation was all about um, creating an awareness of really what we stand for and that one purpose that we stand for. It, it, it has to have a culture where we're open and we listen and we don't listen defensively. We listen in a way saying, how can we do a better job as a leadership team serving this single purpose 
of enabling our staff to do really what they want to do with all of their hearts. They told us with those cards they turned over, that's all they want to do is a good job. So, so that, that process created a process where we're getting much better ideas and we had to act on those ideas. And frankly, we had to deliver, but it was with the pride of this brand. We so much wanted to say we should over deliver in every one of these, in every one of these. And the BBC program, my final comment on it is this, it gave us the gift of no fear because I can't imagine a worse outcome than that. I'm, I'm sure there's worse, please. I'm not asking the universe to show me, but um, I can't imagine a worse outcome than that. Therefore, we didn't need to have fear. We could recreate the organization right now. Now, so what happened then, Zarina? Let me wrap up this story and then um, let you ask some questions. But what happened was um, we were, um, I mentioned 64% in employee engagement. We watched that very carefully. We began a concept of adult to adult communications. We changed the way we did performance reviews. We changed the way we resourced um, and, 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 and searched for talent and who we hired. We changed the way we trained people and onboarded them and gave them technical skills to do their job. We, we really re-looked at everything. The, the result was the um, employee engagement. Remember, let me, let me base that for you. Barclays was 64%. Global high-performing norm was 86%. Within 18 months, Barclays, 30,000 people moved to 92%. Not only the highest bank globally, the highest retail organization globally as wow. measured by the A group. Congratulations. Wow. Amazing well, success. Yeah. It was beautiful. What we had done, we captured the soul of the organization. The soul exists behind the heart of everybody who worked in that company. It's behind the heart. And we... We, instead of using words to describe what we stand for, I mean, I heard endlessly and I saw posters in the lift saying, customers at the heart of everything we do. Well, they're not if financial results are the first and last thing that you look at every day. Mm. That's not the case. So we changed it. And by putting employees in such, a, in such a position where they were empowered, they really were contributing to help them be a better company. And 30,000 of them all rowing in the same direction was a phenomenal effect on this gigantic ship. Well, guess what happened? Employee metrics went from a brand, brand awareness went from seventh in the UK to um, second in the UK. Now, I want to be first always, but in a short period of time, that was remarkable given the, the talent level at the other organizations that we're competing against. So, so it was phenomenal, that movement. Um, by the way, productivity and efficiency. I'll give you an exact example um, of something that was so remarkable. At about this time, the financial crisis hit. So you talk about bad timing. Here comes a financial crisis. With our new strategy of speaking adult to adult, I met with all the key team members, the executive team members, and I said, the organization, when you look at what's coming, is going to shrink. Therefore, we need to shrink the organization. I would like all of you. Now, I was given a target by um, one, of the, one of the group executives, said, you know, Mike, you've got those people in the company. We're going to need a target from you because people are the biggest expense. So, so I'm going to need, I'm going to give you a target. And I had that target in mind in, when, when I talked to my team, but I didn't share it with them. I said, guys, we're going to shrink. Will you each analyze your organizations? Will you talk to your managers? And from a bottoms up, can you tell me what we can do to get the appropriate size of the organization on from the micro then to the macro instead of the reverse? They came up with a plan to reduce the staff levels of the organization by almost 1,300 people through incredibly clever ways in terms of, in terms of not filling jobs, in terms of um, looking at, at people that were struggling with the culture, et cetera. And we're the only bank in the UK that did not get negative media press when we had to close branches or shrink call centers or shrink, um, um, you know, quite frankly, union employees. We're the only one not to get negative feedback because it was done in a very thoughtful, compassionate, and considerate way all around the overall strategy. And by the way, I mentioned 1,300 people. The target I was given was 1,000. So the team from the bottom up once again proved that the culture change we're making and empowerment, they were willing and able to do the tough stuff, but they were able to do it with their heart and soul in a way that preserved the culture of the organization and actually served the brand and the purpose that we all stood for. So all the way they crossed the morning, I, I, I won't bore you any further other than one more point. Financial results then, so to the CFOs who are saying, yeah, but if you don't have targets, we changed the word from target to goals. And I said, I don't want to hear the word target any longer, guys. 
a target is a high jumper in the Olympics. I never watched track and field until it comes to the Olympics, but they set the bar and then they jump over it. They raise the bar, and they barely clear it. Raise the bar, barely clear it. Raise the bar, barely clear it. Well, that's a target. They're clearing the target. Oh, we wanted to shake up the mindset. We wanted to take that whole hourglass and turn it upside down and say, let's talk about goals instead. Absolutely, the organization needs to deliver on the goals. Absolutely, we do. But let's think of it like sprinters. A sprinter comes up to the line and they benchmark themselves against their competitors left and right. Give themselves to complete the race. That's the fastest way possible. And they take all their training and they bring it to bear right there and they give themselves permission to perform. And I'm looking at the finish line right now. And when the starter gun fires, they go as hard as they can and they, and they get their, they, they've got an objective in mind that their job is to do their best performance they can. So we wanted to talk about performance that way, not, not targets. It was goals. That's setting a goal. My goal is to finish that race. So what happened is after that point in time, even during the financial crisis, we never did less than 125% to goal. An organization that could not do 48% to goal. An organization after that, because we hit our goal, obviously does, does what every good company does. They raise our goals. No matter how many times they raise it, they raise it mid-year, one time, two times. Doesn't matter. We beat the new goal by 125%. So when I say art of transformation, that's an art. But it's also almost alchemic in terms of, I don't know if alchemic is a word, but it's alchemy. In terms of taking nothing and making gold out of it. It was, it was the most humbling and, and awesome experience I've ever had as a leader. And so many of those people are my friends today because I'm just in awe of what they were able to do. And in this time right now, when you talk about what needs to be done and how we need to transform organizations, I wish every leader had tons of equity in the bank that they could call in their teams. They had ways of creating innovative culture and figure out how can we do our jobs now in a different way. I, I, I hope they do. My fear is that, and my belief is, quite frankly, that most don't have that type of equity because they didn't necessarily define their leadership relevance in that way. And now they're going to have to transform and transform quickly. And just like I had to do with a lot of pain. Mm. So I hope this story explains what's going on today, what I think how it relates to what we did at Barclays and, and the experience that I had, and what I think the challenges are facing leadership today. But we're going to see great leaders emerge if they know how to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Great story. And, uh, but, but the thing is, you were pulling the strings from the leadership uh, side. And how did you manage to convince the other leaders? Or how did their leadership style need to, to change? Because, of course, when you have somebody who is driving the whole change from, from the closest to the customer people up, then it's easier. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. It's very difficult in any case, but it's, uh, you have somebody to pull the, the strings. But how can leaders change their style or the way they look at things? Would they need external help or what would they need to do in order to confront such a transformation that is impending anyhow? Yes, um, it, it's, a really great, it's a really great question. Um, my, my first thing that I would suggest is that leaders need an objective view. So it's one thing that I love to do is, is to assess the organization, not judge, but assess the organization. And because you need an objective point of view, think about the power structures that are built with every leader and that power structure is now going to be tested. And do you have a team of, of there's always on every team, the, the, the person who whispers in your ear and says what you want to hear. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of people who say, you may want to say this, but legally, compliance-wise, there's this risk and there's that risk. You have to be very, very careful what you say. So we're going to morph this, this statement from you, Mr. or Ms. Leader, in a way that, that may kind of water down the effect that you're trying to have. And, and so it takes somebody from the, sometimes from the outside who can assess your organization and say, you've got a few flaws, you have a few issues, not people issues, but process issues. And in fact, leadership style issues that might permeate the organization. It's incredibly value to have, valuable to have that person assess. Next, the next thing that, that leaders need to have, they, they need to have then the recipe for success. And it's, and it's actually not a social media post like the three things you need to do to transform an entire organization, changing the lives of 30,000 employees, making your bosses happy and delighting the financial markets. There's not three things you need to do, but there is a process that you need to uncover that fits your organization. 
And again, that's what I like. I love to talk about that, Zarina, because I can show what that process looks like and actually how you develop leadership talent that fits the organization that you're going to create, as opposed to leadership talent that fits the organization the way it would have been. So those are things I think would be very important. Would this process also fit organizations that are going through a transformation that requires a lot of online remote working? Let's say 80% or 85% of anybody who's not client facing would need to start working remotely. Would this process also do the job? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's just a challenge of a different sort. And, 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 and so you, a leader, a leader can solve that challenge, but I'll tell you, if you've got to tap into um, he or she have to tap into the, the um, talent skills and abilities of the technical team of the, um, and the, and the workers who are trying to work remotely and make sure that you understand your job is not to direct them. In my opinion, your job is to support them in doing that and help them do that and find out what it is the organization needs to do to make sure that we serve them. If you serve them, you serve your customers. And that's the way I would say to approach it. Mm -hmm. the, um, the communication examples that you gave at the beginning um, led me to think very much about the, the communication styles of leadership because in, in many cases, these, uh, the communication that comes out is not even approved by, by the executive leader. But even so, even if approved or not approved, it's, it's not even a point because, as you said, it completely reflects the, the culture within the organization. Otherwise, a certain per person that writes in a certain way wouldn't be hired for this position, right? Right. It's and, always and, a boy, reflection. And, and it's really challenging because very, very smart people. I had people around me who, who sometimes saved me for myself because while I talk about being open and honest and adult to adult, there's certain things you can or can't say. So the challenge is how do you, how do you um, honor wise people who are giving you good input, but ensure that your communications are authentic to you and your style? Um, and I'll give you two examples. Um, um, one, one is, um, as you can tell, I dislike hypocrisy. And, um, and, and, and I feel sometimes that leaders sound very hypocritical when there is a person who's underperforming, visibly underperforming, and everybody knows then you remove that person from the business, invite them to go pursue a career elsewhere. And then the corporate communication comes out with um, so-and-so want to thank their contribution. They've decided to move on for other opportunities. Now I get why you do that because you don't want to do character assassination. However, we need to write that in a way that is not hypocritical because you're as a leader, you're on that hill and I don't want to say naked, but you're exposed and you are uh, people know. And, and once you, um, start to betray that trust. They also then wonder what other what other things are you not necessarily telling us. But you need very smart people to help ensure that you have an authentic communication, but it's appropriate for the needs of everybody, including the person who's leaving the organization. Uh, dignity and respect is massively important. So so there's ways to to, to do that. Um, other times I have ignored the help of, of very very smart people. The same smart people. Um, we, we um, had, a, had a transformation meeting to announce this, this change. Um, and it was uh, 2,700 managers in a room in Birmingham. And Barclays symbol is an eagle. And I felt that our organization needed to have courage. And I felt it was hypocritical for me to stand up there and say, let's be courageous, be courageous, let's be courageous, with a bunch of um, motivational speaking and the like about being courageous. But then if you don't allow it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, I had this idea because um, I saw it at a uh, an American football game where they where they um, turned an eagle loose and it flew around the stadium and then landed on the gentleman's arm. Mm -hmm. I said we need to turn an eagle loose that meeting, and my very wise head of corporate communication said that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Do not turn an eagle loose. I said, hey, you're just lucky we don't have a tiger for a symbol, but yeah, I'm going to get an eagle and well, I'm turning this eagle loose. My boss came down and said you're not turning an eagle loose. I said I have to. <laughs> I have to show everybody that I'm courageous. I'm going to do it. So at the end of the meeting, I said, what we've been building up to is this program. We're going to transform the brand. And I've got a partner to help me show the brand. And the trainer brought that eagle up. And, um, and I helped Princess the Eagle, which is an African golden eagle. And huge. And I said, you guys, this plan is going to help the Barclays brand fly again. And I launched that eagle and went down to the deck, right over the heads of people, flew right along, and then up. 
And instead of going to the trainer like they did at the American football game that I got this great idea from, uh, the eagle went up into the rafters and disappeared. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I can see my boss like she's, you know, she's just, um, um, she's just gonna, um, you know, hang me for this really. And so, um, so I'm, I planned on this contingency. And so I was talking about, you know, the eagle. And I knew that most people did not know the eagle was loose in the room, but it's a vast auditorium. But pretty soon the eagle did come down and I'm talking and presenting the material, why I turned the eagle loose and what it mattered. Because uh, I told them if, if I wasn't willing to take a risk, how do I ask you to do it? So meanwhile, I'm sweating. And, and finally the eagle comes down. And I say finally, it was really only about 30 seconds, but it seemed like 30 hours. And that doggone eagle lands right next to my boss and starts walking towards her, of course. And um, the eagle trainer has to run over and picks up the eagle and nothing else bad happened. But that was a chance for me to be authentic. I probably could have benefited from good ideas, but in that case, I overruled it to be courageous and to make a bigger point. Now, to this day, people talk about that meeting. I don't know if they remember the transformation plan as much as they do the doggone eagle, but, um, but it's still talked about today because it was pretty outrageous. So. That's two examples of, of utilizing help, being authentic. Uh, maybe one you might not want to do, but um, at the same time underscores how important and highly I value authenticity. Thank you so much, Mike. It was uh, an amazing talk, lovely two stories. Um, if you want to find Mike and work with him, either as an executive, co uh, executive coach or mentor, or even invite him as a keynote speaker, online is also possible why not these days probably we're gonna restrict ourselves from having uh, large corporate okay. gatherings uh, but mike is also available for online sessions um, he's available at growandlearn.org and also at amatosparks.com where you would see that uh, his tagline is master the art of transformation and as he explained now it's an art it's not a process it's not a science it's art <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike, I love for this it. talk. Thank you, thank you, and 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 um, uh, good luck. I'm happy to support your, uh, your, your the growth of your uh, website and your audience. Um, you do a tremendous job, and you've got such an incredible blend of talents that I'm I'm happy to work with you and support you, and uh, and we'll continue to do so in the future. So all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.